Speaking of reliability, a podcast with good friends talking with you about reliability engineering topics. Welcome to Speaking of Reliability. This is Fred Schenkelberg. Good morning, Fred. This is Greg Hutchins. How are you? Hey, pretty good, Greg. Good talking to you again. Hey, I, um, yesterday I did a webinar on uh, failure mechanisms, but I also mentioned that it's important to focus on decisions, and that's going to be the topic of my next webinar next month. But the mostly that comment came from because I had uh, received an email uh, from somebody that, that one of many people I, we asked for some help on figuring out a name for this book Carl and I are working on, and 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 he said, you know, I've read most of the draft and I support the work. I'm looking forward to it. And he gave us a couple ideas and uh, insights on naming it. And he says, but you have to understand that what you guys have written is f- a fundamental evolution of what we do or su- are supposed to do or how we behave as reliability or quality professionals. And he's like, well, that's a nice compliment. But you know, I was trying to think about well, how, what is, what is the, what do we mean here? And, and we chatted just for a few seconds here a moment ago and and it, and I remember when Carl and I were working on the book, and I think we talked to you, Greg, at one point, kind of in this area, talking about different kinds of decisions and those kinds of things. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. But it was it was something that as we were putting the process together, this how do you determine what reliability methods do you need to use? In, in a plan, let's say you're working with a company and, and you say, oh, we need to do this, this and this. Now, if you've got a lot of experience and, and have paid attention to what works and doesn't work, you can pull from the various options and craft something that will probably work really well. But we do that intuitively. And, and I thought, well, that's not in service to the reader of the book if we're saying, oh, then select the tools, you know, select the methods that will help you in these circumstances. And he says, well, there's something else to that. There's we're not just doing tools for the fun of it. And you've heard me talk about that all bunch of times. You don't just do halt just because you have a chamber. You do it because it's the right thing to do. Well, how do you know it's the right thing to do? Became the question. And so Carl and I um, focused in on, well, the results of say that halt process or an FMEA or a data analysis or whatever it is that we're proposing needs to be done uh, creates information that wasn't available prior, right? It might be, is vendor A better than vendor B on some aspect? And we do a test or mm-hmm. a, a study or whatever. But the study itself is of no value whatsoever unless it's used someplace. And and so we focused in on that this information is only of value when it, when it informs a decision. Somebody needs to choose vendor A or vendor B, and there's cost, and there's throughput, and there's locality, and there's financial stability, all these other factors. And one of those, oftentimes, is, is are, are there products uh, meeting our requirements? And one of those might be reliability. And so the, if that information is missing, then the reliability aspect of that decision is missing or, or left to chance. And so became clear to us that, uh, and this is what I think 
in, in the discussion with this, this one reader was the book is novel in that it focuses on not what we do, not what tools we use or how we do analysis or how fancy our viable plots are. It's on you're creating information to influence a decision. And, and I call those the inflection points in the design. That's where you can actually make a difference. You know, if the decision's already made, it, it's very difficult to reverse that after the fact. It costs more. It just is more burden, more headwind to it. You have to have pretty compelling information. But if you can do that just before or as the decision's being made, you can have a tremendous amount of impact on the final output or product of the pro- outcome of the product. So anyway, that's on my mind at the moment. And it, it, and we were chatting briefly about what to call this episode. And you said, what's well, the quality of the decision? And, and it, it's not the, I mean, it, it's part and parcel to that. We have to do good work and provide good information and, and clear information. But, um, I like that idea. And, um, so anyway, I, I'm rambling on enough <laughs> about this thing. What What do you think? What do you think, Greg? What, it's, is this, are we onto something here? Is this new or different, or what, what, what's what's going on here? Well, first of all, yeah, golly, <laughs> where do you want me to start? Um, so you may want to think about the quality of, of for you're searching for a title of a book. How about quality of reliability decisions? Anyway, you get the idea. Yeah. No, my favorite suggestion I had was you got to use current buzzwords in the media. So we, <laughs> the, the suggestion was along the lines of artificial intelligence reliability in a blockchain world. <laughs> and he said, no, I don't think we, no. <laughs> well, that's, interestingly, we have a project, an AI project, and it's all about risk-based decision-making. But that's the essence from our point of view of right. all AI. But anyway, back to your your question. I think in the quality field, we've spent a lot of time focusing on tools. Yep. The seven critical tools of quality, the 30 tools of uh, risk. Uh, I don't know how many tools there are to reliability. Probably a well, lot. What was the Deming ones? He had like 14 rules or – yeah, those were his principles. The yeah. principles, and then the, somebody else came out with fourteen, you know, techniques, and you know, it's just it started with we have a control chart. Now we're going to go look for things to measure, and they're useful, done well. But it's I think you mentioned it, and in one of our other conversations, is that it's if you have a great tool, and you, that's great. But if it's only used in, in search of a problem, you're, you're probably going to sub-optimize. This is kind of my takeaway on that. Is, is If you walk around the plant with only a hammer, it's really hard to check oil density. <laughs> you know? well, yeah, that's a great expression. Tool in search of a problem. So basically, we have a problem in the first case of called confirmation bias. Yep. If you're, <laughs> you know, if you're searching for, <laughs> well, we we did FMEA's last cycle and it worked really well, so let's do it again. Absolutely, you know, absolutely, kind of yeah, yeah. You know, so you know, it's the it's the hammer or the tool to search the problem. Um, yeah, I think you're onto something in terms of reliability decision making. Um, first of all, I think the power of that concept is not really the result. It's not really the tool. 
It's really the process behind thinking through a problem, asking the whys, asking the inputs, asking the process, asking the assumptions. You know, it's actually the stuff that goes around the problem as opposed to the answer. Because the more you understand the problem, the better your solution is. You know, it's very true. I mean, and sometimes that comes to you very clearly. Somebody, you know, procurement engineer says, hey, we've got two vendors. We suspect they they use different technologies. Which one is more reliable in our circumstance? Right. Well, reliability is going to eat that all day long or enjoy that process all day long because now it's very clear. Oh, let's go do some testing of those two and these different stresses that are, are in our product situation, and we'll have information that says, yeah, this one performs better than the other one. But yes. they don't always occur that way. And that's a problem because we really don't have a strict framework or methodology or whatever we want to call it for consistent. Again, consistent is the most critical attribute that we're mm-hmm. talking about here. Mm-hmm consistent decision-making. And I think a plug for your book, I'll take the 20 bucks later, (laughs) a plug for your book, I think that's what it does, is that it provides a consistent framework for decision-making in reliability context. It's, you know, when I look at it, is we have um, uh, six distinct steps uh, to create a plan, basically create and execute a plan. And essentially it's an outline for the different stages or steps you should take so that you can identify and select the right tools to provide the critical information to influence decisions, which is kind of too long for a title, um, such that you achieve your reliability objectives. And the first four steps are really just gathering information about what are you trying to achieve? What are your capabilities? And then two steps on, well, what decisions are you focusing on? You know, what what information, by doing that, then you have an idea of what information you need to create. And, and so that then goes back into that process. And so then all of the, the real life details occur is that what project gets delayed or it gets moved up or it gets changed or, you know, and then we talk about that also. But the primary part is that I, I think in the gist of it is, is that you just, just because you have a thermal chamber doesn't mean you run a bunch of thermal testing unless the output of that, inf- that output is actually useful for somebody. Somebody needs to use that information to make a decision. And if it's not useful information for them to make a decision, then they're not going to use it. And your exercise with the thermal chamber is a complete waste of time. So essentially what you've, what you've written about is a book 300 pages, whatever it is, mm-hmm. on deciding how to decide. Yeah. I think that title's taken, although you can't copyright a title, but we might steal that, I guess. Or, or, or uh, But yeah, it's deciding how to decide. And there's a whole process to that, isn't there? Is how people go about doing it. And that's your six-step six framework, which, by the way, is a great segue. Do you want to share what the framework is? <laughs> um. I'd have to th- pull it up. <laughs> I've only worked on it for years and I have, I'm, I'm visualizing it, but I, but it's, um, uh, as Carl likes to do, he likes to use quotes. And, uh, so he said, you know, you start with the end in mind is what's the vision 
what what are you trying to achieve for this particular project? Mm-hmm. You know, are, are, is it a, a one model year that you're just doing a cost improvement on or something like that? Well, what's the reliability objective? It might be keep it the same or make it worse, or it might be make it way better. But what is it you're trying to achieve? Make sure you're very clear what that is. And and it's a at a at an enterprise level, it's a vision. You know, where you where do you see the business being? 10 years from now, five years from now. And how does that impact your, your specific reliability goals for products? Uh, the second step is understand what your current capability is. What, what is it that you can and can't do? And those can't do's are those gaps. We call them gaps. And those are the differences between what you need to be able to accomplish and what kind of information you need to have available. And are you able to do it? And so, those are areas that you need to invest and 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 improve your capability for whatever that particular reason is. And part of that is the culture of the organization, how decisions are made within an organization. And some of that is hardware. You know, for example, if you don't have a thermal chamber and you want to do thermal testing, well, then you either need to buy one or rent one or or go to a lab someplace that has it. Mm-hmm. But you can solve problems many, many, many different ways only if you know what the problems are. So what do you want to achieve? What are your capabilities? And what's the difference between those things? And that's step two. Step three is, well, what decisions do you need to make? You know, talk to the design engineers. When do they need to select the components and which vendors they're using or what technology? When does the program manager need to say, is it ready to ship? What's the product life cycle uh, milestones that you need to use? And we list a whole pile of places you can go find where decisions are. And so that's another step. And then we prioritize those and narrow them down to what are the vital few that will make the biggest impact? And we talk about value, you know, doing the test that it has the most value. So it's has the most impact. If you don't have the information, it'll have a detrimental a higher likelihood of a detrimental outcome on your product's reliability performance. Mm-hmm, and mm-hmm. so we do a, a bit of prioritizing and stuff like that. And then there's a step of actually, well, what methods actually create that information? And in reality is we don't have six years to run this study. So which method actually works in the six months that you have to get that information? And mm-hmm. so we, only after you know what information you need to create and you understand the constraints, then you sort out, well, what methods or what tools are suitable for us to actually meet that need? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Then those become the plan, and the plan is detailed out by who does what by when and what resources are allocated and all the details of actually a, 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 a very detailed plan uh, that then gets executed. And then mm-hmm. all of the nuances and troubles that occur uh, was every plan is perfect until it starts <laughs> or something <laughs> like that. <laughs> I think there's a military thing like that. You know, the best laid plans go out the window as soon as the first shot is fired, you know, kind of thing. Or as uh, some boxes said, all the best laid plans uh, are put aside until you're punched in the face. <laughs> That's right. It's right after your first punch in the face. Yeah. yeah. It's a, <laughs> so we acknowledge that, and that's part of the process, is that you, you need to continue to be aware of changing conditions, constraints, requirements, you know, so on. It's 
it's not head down, just grind out the plan. It needs to remain relevant for the information that needs to be provided. Mm-hmm. And so that our our general gist of the of the process. And then we have two whole chapters that are on nothing but how do you work with other people? How do you listen and communicate and present and write and and all of these different facilitate all these different skills that are vital for us to be able to understand other people's need for information and to convey that information in a meaningful way. So you've got a bestseller there, Fred. Well, we'll see. We'll see. I got a request that we we sell it in bundles of like five or ten books at a time, so that the pro- programs can buy it and hand them out. I'm like, okay, I could do that. <laughs> very nice. Very yeah. nice. So our process is pretty similar, but for us, we say if there's a gap, that's a risk. Yeah, I, I agree with that. It's I would frame it the same way. It could be used. You could use that term. So we use a very similar process for our decision making, risk based decision making, and risk based problem solving. Um, and um, is your framework going to be one of the classes that you're going to put up on the on Ascendo? Well, first steps first here, Greg. Greg, Carl, and I are still trying to get the editing done, and uh, so <laughs> let's 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 go one step at a time here. <laughs> so. I think, you know, we've got lots of tools and quality and reliability, and they're great. They've been used all over the world. And Deming Duran, Crosby, Feigenbaum, they are all basically seem to be tools-based. You know, I don't – Crosby, not so much. In, in, but I've I only read his early stuff. I didn't ever work with him as a consultant. But it, his Quality is Free book is talks about the maturity, and it's the – it's the culture of the organization about how you use the tools is more important than which tools you use. You know, it's interesting. Um, well, two stories. Um, Crosby, quality is free, actually invented the term, or at least popularized it, of the capability maturity model, mm-hmm. quality reliability. His last talk, so about 10, 15 years ago, we were asked to give a talk uh, at ASQ on the future quality. So, you know, we suggested, why don't we bring in a guru? The only guru we had access to was was Crosby, and we brought him into our talk. And we pulled 400, 500 people for the talk. Certainly not because of me, but it was because Crosby was there. and He was aging out a little bit. And he was, you're right, he was crystal clear about moving up the value chain into process and the enterprise. You're absolutely right. Yeah, I think that's one dimension of it, but it's, I mean, it's moving up, but not in a reactive way. It's moving up in a proactive way. It's, it's anticipate and avoid problems is the higher maturity. And, and that does take support across the organization, right? Across the management chain and everybody else. If the only thing they're going to pay attention to is reaction, then it's very hard to be proactive on a, on a transactional level. Yes. And, and unfortunately, most of us get, uh, get uh, visibility be- to become reactive, to fight yeah. fires. To, to be the heroes, yeah. To be the heroes, right? That we took care of the problem, right? You know, we did an all hands and... We Work the weekend and yeah, yeah. But yeah, I think Crosby was 
really saying, no, that's not a viable way to go. If, if your quality program is going to be useful, you got to change the culture. You got to ad- anticipate and prevent problems, which is, has got all kinds of benefits. So I've got a client now, which is an interesting thing, where they want to get ISO 9001 certified, which is great. Throw back to the past here. <laughs> well, and uh, they want that ticket punch. They want to put it up on the wall, which is great. Uh, but the reality is you get value from changing behaviors, you, you know, changing the way you do things. <laughs> Yeah, don't get me started on the ISO 9000. <laughs> That's just all another topic. <laughs> you can have the procedure, you can have the policy, you can have the work instruction, but getting the changing the way that people change behaviors. And again, it's coming down to deciding how to decide, right? What type of inputs, what type of tools are you going to use to facilitate better decision making, yeah. better problem solving? Well, you know, in a large part, and it might be the way to summarize this, is that if you if you want a better process, right, it, it's, it's not start with the tools, you know, oh, HALT and FMEA and data analysis and, you know, artificial intelligence are all, those are the hot tools, we got to use those. It's what decisions do I need to make in the in this development process or in this what we're doing, and what information do I need that would make a difference in one way or the other that will actually help us make better decisions? And it's a separate view than I've got a toolbox and I'm going to go do stuff. It's, you know, you build this beautiful lab and is that confirmational bias. I need to use this equipment, get the return on investment on it. Well, I think that's misplaced. I think the idea is, is, and it's the same as what you're saying, is deciding how to decide, is this focusing on, well, what information do you need? Then go look in the toolbox for which are the appropriate techniques to create that information. And I don't think Crosby was too far off from that idea. It, it, you know, or he might have inspired it. I'm quite sure he did for me. And there's there's also folks like Covey and, and others that are in time management. They're saying, you know, well, what are the big projects? What are the big goals you have? Start with what you're trying to achieve and and then make decisions that support that and fill in all of the other urgent but not important things later. You know, don't let the phone ringing dictate your schedule. And basically, you start with the end in mind. And I think that was the genius of Covey. So you t- focus on the big picture, yep. the end in mind. You chunk out the smaller problems. You do the same process, and it becomes a sort of a decision tree. Yep. Yeah. So anyway, it's a uh, – the reaction <laughs> we got uh, so far from the book, and, and when we're recording this, we're still tr- – wrapping up the editing and trying to figure out a title for it. But the folks that have spent time and we so much appreciate it, the the hundreds of people that have taken time to read through the drafts and provide comments and input and stuff. We've had hundreds and hundreds of comments ranging from spelling errors, which is amazing. You can have 150 people read through a book and then the next time you pick it up and look at it and you fix everything everybody says and you look at it and you still find a spelling error or, you know, it's, one of, one of the things I ran in today was, uh, I think I mentioned it earlier, is, you know, you, you, um, 
uh, Bob Latino is starting a, a survey of, you know, help me fill in the blank here. You know you're a reliability engineer if, kind of on the old Jeff Foxworthy uh, uh, <laughs> routine. And it's, you know, you know what a Weibel plot is and how to make one. You know, it's kind of my thought. It's, <laughs> I want that to change, though, to you know you're a reliability engineer when you can identify and influence the key decisions you know, and make a difference. Um, showing a Weibull plot for a whole crowd that doesn't really care for that information or know what to do with it or knows why it's useful is kind of pointless. So you need to really understand the situation and work towards that. So understanding those decisions and improving their quality, that's that's a good thing. So anyway... We rambled on enough. Thanks for helping me plug the book. It wasn't my intent with the topic here. <laughs> You're evil that way. But yeah, hopefully by the time this episode airs, uh, we'll be uh, either just uh, published or, or just about to. We should be in layout pretty soon. And so it should be, once that happens, then it moves pretty quick, uh, allegedly. So anyway, Greg, thanks for the idea and uh, the sounding board and prompting a couple of these uh, ideas coming out. But um, now I'm, I'm the more I get feedback on the book, the more I'm enjoying that the effort we put into making it. So I think it's, it. I don't know about bestseller. I don't, I don't think Oprah is going to pick it up, but uh, we'll see. Well, Greg will pick it up for sure. Listen, great talking with you as always, Fred. All right. Talk to you later. <laughs> oh, I should let people know, if you'd want to learn more about what we're talking about with this, one, buy the book. Uh, two is let us know. Send, a, send us over a question or a comment or an idea. Head over to ascendoreliability.com slash go slash SOR. Or you can find Greg or I or the other hosts on uh on our about pages on Ascendo or on LinkedIn. So plenty of ways for you to get in touch and we certainly do look forward to hearing from you. So uh, thanks again, Greg. Uh, I almost forgot to sign off there. <laughs> Take care, Fred. Have a great one. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Thanks for listening to Speaking of Reliability. We invite you to join the conversation. If you have a question or a topic, that you think we should discuss in a future show, please let us know. You can find a comment box below the episode show notes or just leave a note as part of a review on iTunes.